We're going to continue our study this morning uh, of the Lord's Prayer. We've been looking at the various petitions of the Lord's Prayer this summer. And today we're going to look at the request, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And to, to get at that, we're going to, going to try to get at that uh, through the lens of Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of confession after he committed adultery and then murder as well. And so those are the texts we're going to look at. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. And then Psalm 51, and then a, a couple of verses from 1 John as well. But you can find these printed on the inside of your bulletin. We follow along as I read this for us. This is God's Word. From Matthew 6. <clears throat> Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then, I didn't have these printed, but let me read a couple more verses from that passage. Verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And then finally from 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, help us as we approach uh, this text this morning. Uh, Give us a right understanding Uh, of what it means to pray, forgive us our debts. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So four things I want to think about this morning as we think about this text. Um, First of all, why do I need to pray this? Why is this something that I need to pray? And then secondly, how could I dare to pray this? How could I dare be honest about my sin with God? And then finally, uh, thirdly, what does it look like to pray this? And finally, where will praying this lead us? But first of all, why do I need to pray this? Why would Jesus tell me on a regular basis that I need to pray, forgive us our debts, forgive me my debts? There's a recent survey of young adult Americans and it found that 30% believe that there are no definite rights or wrongs that are true for everyone. Uh, one young lady was asked, if, asked, well, are terrorist acts absolutely wrong? And this is what she said. I don't know that people like terrorists, what they do, it's not wrong to them. They're doing the thing they think is the best thing they could possibly do, and so they're doing good. I had this discussion with a friend recently, and she's like, but they're still murdering tons of people. That just has to be wrong. And I was like, but do we have any idea if it, is, if it actually is wrong to murder tons of people? Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Uh, it reminds me of somebody I was talking to earlier in early in my ministry who didn't believe in moral absolutes, and I wasn't getting anywhere with it. And so I finally said, "Well, it would be wrong if I killed your mother." I didn't have a lot of tact in my earlier days, but it kind of got to the point. I said, "Would it would it be wrong? Would you think it was actually wrong if I killed your mother?" And he got really quiet. And and what he said was, "Well, I wouldn't like it, and society would judge you, but I couldn't say it was wrong." He was actually very, he was very consistent with, with what he said. Um, so, so on the one hand, we live in a culture in which more and more moral relativism is being expressed, in which it feels like everything is permitted. But on the other hand, unlike that guy I was talking to, most people are very inconsistent about this. Our society is very inconsistent. Because the same people who will say, well, you you ought to be able to sleep with whoever you want to, at the same time will say, well, it is categorically wrong for Monsanto to to poison the earth. Right? It's wrong for these giant corporations to do things that are bad for people. Uh, A professor at the University of Toronto said, although I believe that values are socially constructed rather than God-given I do not believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality. And you kind of want to say, well, if values are just socially constructed instead of God-given, what's wrong with a little gender inequality or racial inequality every once in a while? It's just kind of my socially constructed values. We're inconsistent. In fact, I'd say that if I had actually killed that guy's mother, not only would society have judged me, but I I really think at the end of the day, he would have said, that's wrong. That was wrong. If the IRS took your assets for no reason, you would say that that's wrong. Uh, If a professor gave you an F when you had made A's on every test all semester, and he gave somebody that had never showed up credit for your coursework, you would be screaming, no matter what your worldview, you would be screaming, that, that's wrong. That's categorically wrong. You shouldn't do that. Well, why aren't we more consistent? Why aren't we more consistent on this? Why don't more people who claim to be moral relativists acknowledge 
that in their worldview, there really is no reason to be kind or to love other people or to help the weak or to work for peace or to confess to wrongdoing. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche said that if there is no God, there are no moral facts whatsoever. Why don't more people not just say that, but live like they actually believe that? I think it's because we all know that there is a standard. And we know that there is a God behind that standard. As beings who are made in the image of God, we know that there is a standard. Even though when we we try to say, no, it's just whatever you want to do, we know when pressed that there is a standard. And we are aware, even though we may try to suppress it, that the reason that there is a standard is that there is a God who exists behind that standard. Uh, Former atheist A.N. Wilson tried to suppress that knowledge of God for years, but finally he came to see that, in his words, materialistic atheism is totally irrational. And he said this because he finally realized that atheism couldn't account for love or for beauty or for morality. And he knew that all three of those things were true and existed. So what does this have to do with with praying, forgive us our debts? Why should I pray that? Why should I pray, forgive me my debts? Why should you pray that? You should pray that because you know that beauty and love and morality are real things. You know that there is a standard. And you know that there is a God behind that standard. And if you're willing to be honest, no matter what your belief system is, you would admit that you haven't always done the right thing or the good thing or the kind thing. Uh, Jay-Z, and I think this is in his latest album, admits this uh, in a song titled 444, which is supposed to be a confession of his unfaithfulness to Beyonce. And this is some of the lyrics. I'll I'll, I'll edit it a little bit. Um, And if my children knew, I don't even know what I would do. If they ain't look at me the same, I would probably die with all the shame. You did what? With who? What good is that when you have a soulmate? You risk that for Blue, and Blue's the name of their daughter. If I wasn't a superhero in, in your face... My heart breaks for the day I have to explain my mistakes, and the mask goes away. And I apologize, because at your best you are love, and because I fall short of what I say I'm all about. And you know, that, that's actually pretty good as, as far as it goes. As far as it goes, you, you get a sense of his shame. It's a little self-centered still, but you get a sense of his shame. Uh, you, you get a sense uh, that, that he's actually messed up. He's sincere. But what does that confession miss? What does it lack? What's the big difference between that confession and David's confession in Psalm 51? I think that the, maybe the, if you had to boil it down, the biggest difference is what's lacking in his, Jay-Z's confession is verse 4 and 5. Look at verse 4 and 5 of David's confession. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
And David is not saying there, well, I didn't wrong Uriah or anything like that. But what he's emphasizing is, is at the end of the day, my sin is ultimately against God. That it was not just another human being or other human beings who were involved in what I did and who were affected by this. But my sin is ultimately directed toward God. David recognized that he is supposed to be under the authority of his creator, but he has rejected his creator's authority. He knew his creator had said, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. And he knew he had done both of those things and that he stood guilty and condemned. But that wasn't just this vague sense of guilt and shame that he needed to get off his chest. He knew that he needed to confess these to God. And so what's, that's what the psalm is about. And you know, as you read through the Bible, it doesn't just say, well, some of us are bad guys like David who make really big mistakes and we need to confess those sins and the rest of us are pretty good. It actually puts all of us in David's shoes. We may not have committed exactly the same shoe, but we've got same shoe, same sin, but we've all uh, broken God's Law. Romans, Romans 3 puts it this way in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That we are all accountable to God for the things that we have said, for the things that we have done. So why do I need to confess? Why do I need to pray, forgive me my debts? It's because I'm like David and I have done sinful deeds which flow out of a sinful heart. Because like David, I was brought forth in iniquity. Why do I need to confess? Well, I probably didn't need to go through all of that uh, rigmarole or, or whatever you want to call that because I probably could just say, why do you need to confess? Just think about your last week. Why do I need to confess? How were things on the way to church this morning? I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's real easy to get at that, to, to, to ask yourself, have I really loved my neighbor as myself this week? Have I really served people around me, even though it might cost me something? Have I always done the kind thing or the thoughtful thing or said the loving thing? Why do I need to pray, forgive us our debts? Why do I need to confess? Because my debts and my sins are many, and so I need to confess them to God. Well, secondly, how could I dare to confess? How could I dare to be honest about my sin before God? How could I dare to admit to the, the thoughts and desires of my heart, my heart to him? If, if I know God is a just judge who rightly judges sin, who says that the wages of sin, the consequence of my sin is death... How can I dare confess my sins? It seems like if I knew that, I would try to, even though it might seem futile, I would, I would try to run from God. I would try to cover up my sin. I would try to hide. And so how can I be honest before the judge? It's The key, I think, is verse 1. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Uh, David appeals for mercy. Not because he thought he somehow deserved mercy, but because he knew something about God. He knew that the God who is just is also a God who is loving and merciful. He knew that the God who will by no means clear the guilty was also the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He knew that the God who is a just God is a God who delights to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Is that how you think about God? You know, we, we tend to view him as one or the other, but, but do you really think about God as a God who is perfectly just and yet is also filled with love and compassion? You know, sometimes when we, when we do come to grips with our sins, some of us have, have kind of been through that, and you may begin to think, if, if you leave out this part about God's mercy, you begin to think, you know, my sin's just too much. Like, I've, I've just messed up. Too many times. Or it was, it was too big a sin. My, my debt is too great to ever really be paid. There's no way God could let that go. He may be able to let your sin go, but I don't know that he could let my sin go. But that's what you have to see. That you have to see that it's in the nature of God to be merciful. And if you come to him in the midst of all of your mess, if you simply come to him like the prodigal son returning to the father and confess that sin before him, he will, like the father in that parable, throw a party for you and welcome you and restore you and forgive you. Uh, there's a story, I, I, I'm pretty sure it originated, well I know it originated with Tony Campolo and, and I didn't hear it from him, I heard it from Somebody else, uh, but the story is that, that Tony was a minister, and he was in a, he had a, he was teaching somewhere in Hawaii, and he had flown in, and you know he had the jet lag thing going on, he couldn't go to sleep, and so about one or two in the morning, he winds up in a little dive diner. Uh, it's 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 late, he's tired, you know, he's he's having trouble adjusting. So he's sitting there hanging out in this diner, talking to the to the guy at the bar, and as he sits there, a group of prostitutes comes in. And he overhears the, the conversation that they're having. And he realized that the next day was going to be one of their birthdays. And this lady named Agnes says, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. And, and one of the other prostitutes says, yeah, but women like us don't have birthday parties. Women like us don't get birthday gifts. And they walked out of the diner. And Tony was sitting there and he looked at the... The, the cook there and he said let's throw Agnes a party tomorrow night and the cook was kind of surprised but he got into it and so he agreed to bake a cake with Agnes's name on it and they put the word out on the street that they're going to have a birthday party for Agnes the next night and so the next night 60 prostitutes show up in this little diner in Hawaii and Agnes comes in and she's stunned and, and they invite her up and she blows out the candle and, and, and they invite her up to blow out the candles and they have to tell her to do it three times because she's so overcome by what's happening. And she finally does and she's just sitting there look, looking stunned and she's like, what do I do with it? And the cook says, well, you can do whatever you want to with it. So she just grabs the cake and she runs out the door with it to go, to go show someone else what's happened. And so Tony's sitting there with, with all those 
women and all those people. And he said, you know what, let's, let's pray. And so he prayed for Agnes and he prayed for those other women. He said there wasn't a dry eye in the place because they couldn't believe that there was somebody who actually cared about women like them. Agnes couldn't believe that someone could have compassion on her and, and even throw a party for her. God is just. God is just. But God is also a God who throws parties for the worst of sinners. God is just. But God is also a God of steadfast love and great mercy. So don't let your sin keep you from coming to this merciful God. That does bring up an interesting question there. How could God be just and merciful at the same time? How could God be righteous and forgive David for what he has done at the same time? And Proverbs 17 says this, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Like he, he detests judges who acquit the guilty and condemn the innocent. But isn't that what God's doing? I mean, isn't, isn't God actually acquitting the guilty? How can he do that? How do we resolve these two aspects of God's character? How do we resolve God's love and God's justice? Uh, Romans chapter 3 again has this verse that's kind of puzzling to us sometimes. It says this. Um, I want to start here. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What was he talking about? That that God had passed over these former sins, that there are these sins committed beforehand that somehow had remained unpunished. And I think what Paul's getting at in Romans 3 is that those sins had remained unpunished until now. Until Christ came and was punished for them. See, David's sin actually did go unpunished in the divine scales for, for, for a long time. And then Christ showed up and took the punishment for his sin. God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus Christ stood in for David and said, punish me. You see what it costs to forgive David's sin? It wasn't, God just didn't say, oh, okay, that's fine. You're the king. I'm going to let that one go. No, there was a cost, a price that has to be paid. And so you see what has to happen for God to remain just. And he had to forgive sin at the same time. Jesus had to bear that penalty so that God could say to David, I've forgiven your debt because my son has paid it. A just and merciful God delights to forgive the sins of those who come to him with a contrite and a broken heart. But he is able to forgive those sins because his son has actually paid for them. He's able to forgive our debt because that debt has actually been paid. Well, thirdly, what does it look like for us knowing these things to pray in a practical way, uh, forgive us our debts, to actually confess our sins? I just kind of want to work through this really briefly to kind of give you some idea of what it looks like 
for us to confess our sins. Uh, Verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Because he knows God is just and merciful, he doesn't try to blame shift. He doesn't have to say, well, I was tired, I was hungry, I didn't mean to you, it's not my fault. He, He fully owns his sin. He takes responsibility. He names it and claims it. He names and claims his own sin. Uh, verse 4, David recognizes that ultimately his rebellion doesn't, doesn't, doesn't just affect other people, but it's actually committed against God. That our sin is actually us kind of standing in the middle of the street flipping God off and saying, you are not going to rule over me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so David recognizes that his sin is ultimately against God. He even sees in verse 5 and 6 that they're not just individual sins, but, but that they're wrapped up in his very character. That he sins because he is a sinner, that that's who he is. And so David confesses his sin, but he doesn't just confess, he cries out for forgiveness, he cries out for renewal. Verse 1 Have mercy on me and blot out my transgressions. Right? Think of a sheet of paper. With the, with the list of your sins. And David says, God, will you just, you just wide that up and, and throw that away and give me a clean sheet? Or think about somebody who is recording every minute of your lives. And we're getting closer and closer to that, aren't we? Uh, or, or someone who is recording every thought that goes on in your head. And it's just there, available for the world to see. And David says, we please erase that tape? Will you please delete the hard drive that that's on? Will you, will you please... Remove that from the evidence that is stacked against me. He goes on to say, wash away my iniquity. God, I'm like clothes. I've been camping for 50 days and wore the same shirt every day and hadn't had a shower. I'm just nasty. Will you cleanse me from my sin? Verse 7, he asked to be cleansed with hyssop, which was excuse me, used in the Levitical rituals. And it was a way the priest would pronounce lepers clean. Wash me. Cleanse me. Uh, Verse 9, he wants God to to hide his face from his sin. Blot out his iniquities. Verse 14, save me from blood guiltiness. I I do deserve to die. He's honest about his sin. He's honest about who it's directed toward. He's honest about what the consequences for his sin ought to be. And so he says, forgive me and take away my guilt. But he doesn't stop there. He asks to be renewed and changed he doesn't say hey god forgive me and then i'm going to go back to doing what i was doing before he says god i I want you to actually change me Uh, verse six teach me wisdom in the secret heart verse 10 create in me a clean heart O god and renew a right spirit within me verse 12 restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit In other words, David isn't just looking for a quick and easy pardon so that he can go back to his old ways with the guilt removed. But he wants to be changed. He wants to be changed. Uh, In one sense, this is the type of prayer you might pray when you first come to know Christ. You might, for the first time, understand your guilt. And so this might be the way you come and approach God. God, I confess my sin, but I pray for the mercy that you've offered me. In Christ. But it's also the type of prayer that we ought to pray every day as believers. 
Not because we need to become Christians all over again, but because we need, but because we still sin and we need the forgiveness that Christ has purchased applied to us every day. John chapter 13, Jesus said, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And I think that's a good picture of why we need to pray this every day. Our bodies are clean. We've been justified. We're right with God. But as we walk through the world every day, we get dirty. Our feet get dirty. We sin. And so we daily need to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. Uh, Tish Harrison has a book I've really been enjoying called uh, Everyday Liturgy. And she tells a story. You, you guys probably had days like this where you got your day planned, right? And I got to go do these three things. And then I'm going to pop into the office. And then I got to pick the kids up. And I got to run back. By. And she's got everything laid out. Everything's going right according to plan. And she gets ready to walk out the door. And she can't find her keys, right? We've all done this. And she can't find her keys anyway. And she said she went through the, the stages of searching for lost objects. Uh, and, and maybe you relate to these. She said there's the, the logical stage. And then there's the self-condemnation stage. Like, why am I so stupid? I can't believe I put these where I could find these. And then there's the vexation stage, the, which is the why isn't God helping me? God, you know you can help me with this. Like, why today have you hidden my keys from me? And then the fourth she calls the desperation stage. And then the fifthly is the last ditch stage where you do actually stop and pray for a minute. And then if nothing happens, you enter into stage six, which is the desperation stage. Or despair stage. Eventually, after 15 minutes of this, she finds her keys. She finds her keys. And she said this. In my anger, grumbling, self-berating, cursing, doubt, and despair... I glimpsed for a few minutes how tightly I cling to control and how little control I actually have. And in the absence of control, feeling stuck and stressed, those parts of me that I prefer to keep hidden were momentarily unveiled. And she says, in in everyday moments like this where my, my brokenness is revealed, she says, I need to develop the habit of admitting the truth of who I am, of confessing my sins. Not running to justify myself or minimize my sin. And yet, in my brokenness and lostness, I also need to form the habit of letting God love me. Trusting again in his mercy. And receiving again his words of forgiveness and absolution over me. Rich Mullins said that when he was a kid, he'd walk down the church aisle and be born again and rededicate his life to Christ every year at camp. In college, he'd do it about every six months, then quarterly. By the time he was in his 40s, he said he was doing it about four times a day. Repentance is not usually a moment wrought in high drama. It is the steady drumbeat of a life in Christ, and therefore a day in Christ. That's what a day in Christ looks like, is repentance. Martin Luther said, all of life is faith and repentance. And so... We, we pray, confessing our sin, praying, uh, forgive us our debts. It's an ongoing thing. We pray it about the big things. We pray it together as a church body, but then we pray it also in the little things. Crying out to God, confessing, and trusting in his mercy. And then finally, and, and I'll wrap up with this, where does it all lead? Where does it all lead? Uh, for one, it, it leads to a heart of praise and to actually singing praise. That's what David says here. He says, as, as you forgive me and cleanse me and open my lips, I'll sing your praises. 
I'll sing your praises. You know, the, the, the songs that we sing each week, uh, you know, I think we can approach them different ways. We can approach them like, I, I really like this song because I like the rhythm and it kind of lifts me up. I really don't like this song because it's old and, or, or it's new. And we get caught, all caught up in whether I like or don't like a particular song. When really, if, if we were kind of locked into what David says here, man, I've been forgiven by God. Then I ought to be able to, to praise God with whatever we're singing. Because I'm not locked in so much on whether I, I, I like this particular song. I'm locked in on, on what I'm doing right now. And I'm praising the God who has forgiven my sins. And so confessing and receiving forgiveness leads to praise. It also leads us to have a forgiving heart. And, I, and I, I can't unpack all this right now, but Jesus basically says, if you think you've been forgiven by me and you run around and you don't forgive other people, then you haven't really been forgiven by me. Because you don't understand mercy. You understand the debt that's been paid. And so being forgiven leads to forgiveness. And then finally, this all leads to change. And let me, let me read um, from, from the book I just quoted again, Everyday Liturgy. Praying forgive us our debts every day, praying it in the moment by moment actually leads to change. Here's what she writes. The practice of confession and absolution must find its way into the small moments of sinfulness in my day. When it does, the gospel, grace itself, seeps into my day and those moments are transformed. They're no longer meaningless interruptions, sheer failure and lostness and brokenness. Instead, they're moments of redemption and remembering, moments to grow bit by bit in trusting Jesus' work on my behalf. Over time, through the daily practices of confession and absolution, I learned to look for God in the cracks of my day, to notice what those moments of failure reveal about who I am, my false hopes and false gods. I learned to invite the true God in the reality of my lostness and brokenness to agree with him about my sin and to hear again his words of blessing, acceptance, and love. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would be a people um, who confess our sin moment by moment. That we would see the not just the big sins in our life, but the little sins that express themselves in our anger and frustration and despair at times. And I pray that we would not say that those things were well, us just life, but we would actually see the, the sin lurking there and confess it and own it. But then also be quick to run from that to the promises of the gospel. Because you are a merciful God. You're a God of steadfast love and compassion. You're a God who's given Jesus, not just for our big sins, but for our little sins. And so help us to run to him daily. We pray it in his name. Amen.